0: I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady.
1: This is the Metaclass Citizen Podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back. So uh, today we have a guest that needs no introduction, and if you do need an introduction to him, just go back a couple episodes and uh, watch where we intro or listen to where we introduce Dr uh, John Allen. So Doc Allen, thanks for joining us again, man. Great to be here.
2: Thanks for having me back, fellas.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a, uh, this is a topic that we've wanted to tackle for a long time. Um, and, uh, we know that you are a medical director and this is a, this is a, uh, this is a topic that you have been interested in as well with your services, uh, that you are a medical director of. And so it's kind of cool to finally get to dive into push those pressers. Um, so, you know, we know that it's a very popular topic. It has been for the past five years. Um, not only with emergency medicine, uh, but with helicopter EMS. But it seems to be the trend that now it's kind of making its way down to the uh to the ground ambulances.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that this is actually becoming um sort of a trend now in the pre hospital setting, because in the procedural areas, um cardiac lab, um, OR, and those kinds of settings, push-dose pressors are a staple. I mean, they're not only routinely given, but, um, you know, it's kind of a standard, Um, you know, especially when you're doing uh, certain procedures that cause, uh, you know, maybe they cause a little bit of transient hypotension. Uh, But I know anesthesiologists have been doing this forever. It's actually pretty common uh, in the cardiovascular operating room. Uh, Anesthesiologists give these uh, routinely during cases, especially when there's, you know, a little bit of transient hypotension uh, either caused by a procedure or something that, um, uh, you know, is uh, is going to be kind of short-lived. A little bit of a, a push dose presser kind of helps a patient kind of stay out of the danger area. Um, so it's something that's pretty commonly used in those settings. So it's pretty interesting that it's now uh, just kind of uh, making its way into emergency medicine, pre-hospital medicine.
1: So it makes sense. I mean, you know, it it makes sense in the uses um, in the past. So, so Doc Allen, what has kind of uh, sparked your interest in it? What in particular has made you think about utilizing push dose pressers for the uh, agencies that you're the medical director of?
2: I've used it in the emergency department. Like Jason was saying, we've been doing that for a long time. And when I thought about it conceptually, and then I I looked at what we currently do in pre-hospital medicine using, dopamine on a, on a drop set. And, you know, it's, it's in my mind, very difficult to get a particular dose of a vasoactive medication administered through a drop set. It's uh, the analogy that I use. It's kind of like, you know, measuring with a micrometer, marking with a Sharpie and then cutting with a chainsaw. It just, you know, you, you go over a bump and you get a bigger drop and, you know, you all of a sudden get a bigger dose of, Of dopamine. So when I was looking at how to manage hypotension in the pre-hospital arena, it just, it makes more sense to me to use sort of a call and response methodology where you're giving a fixed dose of a medication, you're looking for that response, and then you can adjust additional doses if needed to get the desired effect. It's not where, you know, you just turn the dopamine up until their ears turn pink and then kind of, you know, really you're not getting a specific dose with that. It's, it's more, you're just kind of winging it, but uh, it just made more sense to me conceptually looking at a, a push dose presser mechanism.
1: Yeah. I know you've uh, you've talked about the uh, the 3am back of the truck medicine before (laughs) as far as
2: trying to calculate the dose of dopamine, you know, it's weight-based and all that stuff. When you're in the back of an ambulance, you're the only one back there taking care of somebody who's really sick. I can't expect my paramedics to be able to do that level of mental calculus for a drug that could potentially have some adverse effects for the wrong dose. So we try to make it as easy as we can in terms of, you know, making the the dose pretty constant across the populations. Uh, You know, we look at the concentrations that are available and how it's packaged just to try to avoid um, any confusion or dosing errors, those kinds of things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, um, the, the cool thing about this is, and we'll get into the literature or lack thereof for, uh, ground ambulances here shortly, but I think the pretty cool thing that I've never thought about until, you know, getting ready for this talk is that you have options. You have a lot of different choices and nobody's really dove into those options before, as far as the utilization in the back of the truck and the availability. Um, but uh, so so, what one in particular are are you thinking about heading towards as far as pressor choice?
2: Yeah, so I think the the most common pressor pressor choice that we're going to use will be push dose epi. I think for the indications that we'll use it for and the availability, uh, that's going to be our primary mm-hmm. our primary choice. Uh, you have other options like phenylephrine that that doesn't have as much. Um, it, tachycardia associated with it. So it's, it's good for using it, uh, in a patient that's already tachycardic and hypotensive, but the vast majority of times epi is going to be the most, the most common. Um, and when we look at trying to, um, trying to get to the right concentration, there are ways to, you really just use the cardiac epi syringe. So you don't have to worry about dilution. You don't have to worry about, um, it minimizes the risk of potential dosing errors. Mm-hmm. And it's a medication we're already very familiar with. So I think that's going to be our, our most common good to push dose pressure.
0: Just on the front end, what's been some of the feedback you've gotten from uh, you know, I know you're you're involved at the national level um with emergency physicians. Um, what's kind of been the consensus across the board with your colleagues on the feasibility of this? Honestly, I don't know that there is a consensus.
2: You know, it's, it's more for ground EMS. It's more of a conceptual idea. Helicopter EMS has been doing it for a long time. Like you said, they do it in the procedural areas in the hospital, but there aren't a ton of services, ground-based services that have been using it. Everybody is, for whatever reason, stuck with, with dopamine, um, is really just the bridge to get the patients to the hospital. So there's not a great amount of of research that's been done in the ground ambulance arena. It's mostly just, like I said, a conceptual framework that's been tried in some places. And, uh, there hasn't been as far as I can tell a lot of adverse, um, you know, adverse data to support not using it. So, um, You know, it's certainly possible that we'll implement it and, um, it's not going to turn out the way I expect it to, but, um, you know, I think it's worth looking at, um, I think it's worth implementing it to see if it does actually work the way I think it's going to do in my mind.
0: Yeah. I found it pretty interesting. Um, just as, you know, as I, I kind of think through this in the pre-hospital realm, um, just anecdotally, it's been my experience that vasopressors, even in infusions, it is incredibly rare to have a patient come in on one of these right you know whether it's um you know short transport times and you know it can be cumbersome to get these medications out and kind of figure out the the dosage and Um, you know, when you've got everything else uh, going on or whether people are just not as familiar with it. But it's also interesting to me, and, and, you know, we know EMS has limitations as far as, you know, pumps and, you know, how we deliver uh, deliver infusions. But it's interesting that we would really never allow this type of infusion in the hospital setting. Again, there's far more resources, but you would never really just put somebody on a drip and calculate, you know, without putting it in a pump.
1: Yeah, um, for
0: uh, for safety reasons, it would never, you know, um, and 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 of course, you know, there's a lot of limitations that are are in the pre-hospital setting. So that aside, um, it's just interesting that it has taken this long for this to kind of become uh, a thing that is at least being talked about, let alone um, becoming something that's practical.
2: Well, yeah, I think a couple of reasons behind that are number one, there's not a lot of research, and number two. When I looked at implementing this, there are a couple of things that I really had to focus on so that I was comfortable with minimizing the risk of adverse effects. So number one is making sure that the appropriate concentration of the medication is going to be given. Uh, Epi obviously is given one to 1000 for anaphylaxis IM. Typically the concentration for epi in cardiac dosing is 1 to 10,000. So you're looking at giving, for push dose pressors. you're giving microgram push doses. So there are a couple of different ways to do that. One is to dilute it down to 1 to 100,000. So you're giving, um, you can get that small microgram dose. The problem I see with that is if you're giving, if you're trying to give, for instance, 10 micrograms with a 10 ml syringe, and you're trying to give 10 micrograms in an ml, it's really difficult in my mind to not give either 9 or 11 or 8 or 12, because there's a lot of play in the markings on the syringe and giving a milliliter of of medication through a syringe in the back of a bouncing ambulance. So the other piece is really to make sure that we're minimizing if Inadvertently, an entire syringe of that medication is given. We're minimizing the amount of medication that's in that syringe, so that if you get a hundred micrograms total of epinephrine because you accidentally push the whole syringe, you're probably going to get some adverse effects, but it should be fairly short lived. Whereas, if you're hooking up the one to ten thousand one milligram syringe that we would give for cardiac arrest doses, that's going to be a problem if you inadvertently give the whole thing. So. those are the two pieces that in my mind, we really had to figure out before I was going to be comfortable implementing this in the uh, in the
1: service. And so this is kind of a, uh, a back step or maybe this could be a leap forward. I'm not really sure, but I'm just going to ask it anyway. <laughs> Jason, you've been teaching EMS for decades now. Um, I said it like that just to kind of, you know, get a jab yes. at you. Yeah, no problem. Um, but... You know, you've taught medics, you've taught several different types of emergency medicine providers how to utilize pressors and things like that. How much of a paradigm shift do you think it's gonna be in the educational world to teach a push dose presser? Or do you think it's just gonna be just like anything else?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and that was I was kind of asking John that uh, what what if there was any kind of pushback on that? I think, you know, you're gonna get um varying um, degree of responses. You're going to get some of your old folks that uh, are probably going to say, I don't ever use a presser anyway, because I'm close to the hospital or I'm never going to do that. Um, You know, I think if you probably poll your average medic and your average 911 or typical 911 uh, system, these are, these are given very rarely. Um, But um, I think the, uh, the reason that this could work is to play on that, why are pressers not given um you know they're cumbersome there you have to remember the the dosage you know we te- you know when you come out of school and you learn the clock method and you learn all the stuff with levofed and and all that you know it makes sense until you walk out the door and then <laughs> it doesn't make sense anymore and then like you said, at two o'clock in the morning um you know are you just given a little bit until you uh until you see a result and then figure out. Uh, how much you're you're giving. Um, Or you're just just turning your head and
2: cycling the cuff again and sort of ignoring it because you're five minutes out and you don't want to mess with it.
0: So exactly, exactly. Um, And so, no, I I mean, I think there is the potential here. If there's, if it's going to work, this is the potential to make it work, not to add another presser, not to try to figure out, um, you know, let's put vasopressin on and, and let's put Neo on and let's put all these other ones on. You know, I, I think, um, John, as you said, use, utilizing something that we already have um, and uh, figuring out, hey, do we keep the same concentration? Because, I, I honestly, I do worry about the concentration piece. Uh, I think that's something we yeah. should probably talk so about. On that, on that note, one of the things, I actually just listened to uh,
2: a podcast. I've plugged them before, but Scott Weingart's MCRIT. They just had a little episode about push epi. And his concerns were the same, the total amount of medication that's in the syringe you can deliver, and then the accuracy that you can deliver that medication with. So one of the things they talked about was drawing up out of the cardiac syringe, the one to 10,000 epi into a one CC insulin type syringe. So insulin, you're giving very specific doses of insulin on the unit level, so that same type of syringe will allow you to give microgram level doses of epinephrine. And because you're only pulling up a hundred micrograms into this one ML syringe, like I said, you can give hundred micrograms. It's not going to be great, but it should be fairly short lived and, and shouldn't have significant adverse events. So that's the, the direction that we're going in terms of the equipment to
0: minimize the potential for dosing errors and minimizing the potential for overdoses
1: yeah any yeah, i
0: really like that and that's important i think that's a uh and that that's a thing that we we don't typically do um but i think that's uh almost a man should be a mandatory mm-hmm. uh thing you know kind of like using a 60 drop set i mean you, could you do it with a 10 sure but it's not going to be as accurate you're not right. going to Well, the other
2: the other common method, right, is to pull up a milliliter out of the uh, the cardiac syringe, the cardiac epi, and then diluting it with nine cc's of saline, so you get to the one to one hundred thousand concentration. But you know that's like three extra steps, all of which have the potential for you know do you draw up a cc and a half of the epinephrine instead of a cc, or do you not put enough saline in, and so now you know it just introduces so many potential. sources of error where if I'm just drawing up one ml out of this cardiac syringe and I'm not diluting it I think it just minimizes the risk for those potential errors
1: yeah I agree and I've heard of other services utilizing something like a three-way stopcock to push pull what you need but the problem with that is if you if you're not really truly paying attention it's three o'clock in the morning and you're trying to get this done um in a in a timely manner you could be pushing and pulling in the wrong direction and completely yeah. misdilute it.
2: Absolutely, and you know, in my mind, like if if somebody is going to end up giving more than a hundred micrograms of push dose epinephrine, I really want them to have to think about. I'm going to have to go back to this syringe and draw another cc out of this cardiac epi before I give it. If you've already given a hundred mics, then there needs to be another mental uh, speed bump that says, "Hey, maybe I'm." not doing what i'm supposed to be doing
0: you know that's a good point too especially in the real world of uh you know we get these sick patients you've got two or three people in the back you know let, let's say even they're all uh they're all paramedics and the lead medic says okay we're going to give a uh a, um, we're going to give a presser hand me that medication and there's an assumption that there's you know one milliliter uh, or you know uh, one milliliter of epi and nine milliliters of saline in there and it turns out it's a full brist eject of, uh, <laughs> of epinephrine. You think you're given, you know, you think you're given a 10th of that. You're really given the whole thing. And I think it just, uh, um, you know, just way too many errors can be introduced there.
1: Yeah. And I want to toss you a kudos real quick, doc, because, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really awesome when people are aggressive, whenever medical directors are aggressive and they, they try to move forward, but it's even better whenever they're safe about it at the same time. I mean, it it seems like you're really trying to vet this out and and taking precaution as much as you possibly can. So Well, that's
2: the that's the number one thing, right? We've talked about push those pressers now. I I can't remember how many meetings going back, but it's been months that we've been talking about implementing these. And we've gone through I don't know how many protocol revisions where we'll put something up, we'll look at it for a couple of weeks and I, you know, we just poke holes in it because it's it's got some source of air that we didn't see. So um, we've really gone back to the drawing board on multiple occasions to make sure that this is as easy as possible for the, the medics in the back to use and as safe as possible for the patients uh, because that's obviously paramount to everything else. So, so and I think going back to another point that Jason made, yeah. you know, I think this is going to be a, a very um, – Low frequency event, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the the number of times that I think this is going to get used is is probably pretty low. Um, you, you know, I think you have if you look at medics in the service on kind of a bell curve. You've got you got the medics on one end that are never going to use it because they're not comfortable with it, they're not familiar with it, and they're just going to turn their head when you have a pressure of sixty because mm-hmm. they're five minutes from the hospital. But then you've also got the other end of the curve where people may use it because they have it either appropriately or inappropriately. So it's really a matter of of kind of striking the balance between efficacy and safety uh, and tailoring it to fit both of those populations of of members of the service.
0: Awesome. Yeah, that's a good point. Let me, let me ask you this. Um... In your uh and and not necessarily you not know, obviously in the in the protocols that you're writing, but um just clinically speaking, where should a where should you start with the blood pressure thinking about whether or not um a pressor may be needed?
2: Yeah, so it really depends on the circumstances, right? Because in in trauma, for instance, you want to allow a bit of permissive hypotension. Uh, so that's probably not the setting. I would get a little bit, uh, I would be a little bit less aggressive in terms of blood pressure with that, but for somebody that's suspected sepsis or, uh, you volume resuscitated them and they're not really responding. Um, you know, we look at in the emergency department, obviously, you know, a map of 65 is what we look for, but, um, maps are not as commonly used in, in ground EMS. So, and if you're looking at a, a, Systolic of ninety in somebody that is not a trauma patient. I think that's where we start looking at. If they're not responding to a, a small bolus of fluid, then uh, I would start to consider the use of of a short acting small bolus of push dose pressor.
0: Yeah, one of the things uh, Brandon and I have talked about a good bit, and it's kind of a um, kind of a joke in EMS uh really or maybe even emergency medicine is that uh, you know we we call dopamine no hopamine and leave a fed leave them dead yeah. um when in turn it probably is that's probably true uh because by the time we start leave a fed they're just about dead um mm-hmm. and so we start to leave a fed they die and then in our minds we want to start correlating that to uh oh we gave them leave a fed and they died rather than well, could it be because we gave Fed way too late? Sure. And I think that's one of the other
2: reasons that I was really looking at trying to introduce this is because the sooner we can get those patients perfusing appropriately, now, I mean obviously you're going to get some some distal perfusion issues from the vasoconstriction from the the epinephrine. But you know, if you can get their central circulation perfusing earlier. I think you're going to minimize shock, the downstream effects of shock, of acidosis. So the earlier we can get that syndrome treated, I think in my mind, conceptually, there's potentially a better outcome.
0: So is there a use for this in the pre-hospital setting um, to avoid shock as someone who may be, you know, we, we, we typically use this, uh, really terrible definition of, uh, systolic blood pressure, less than 90 for, th- for 30 minutes or greater, which is a absolutely insane, um, definition. Uh, should we be looking at things, um, aside from, uh, bl- uh, systolic blood pressure specifically? And what I mean by that is, um, do you write into your protocols things more than just blood pressure, altered mental status, um, you know, signs of poor perfusion with a blood, with a blood pressure of a hundred um, with a patient with hyper, uh, hypertension typically, is that an appropriate patient to start on a low dose presser?
2: Yeah, I think that's a good point. You know, it's, um, it's important to not just treat a number on a monitor, right? It's, it's easy to do. Like you have the bradycardic patient that, has a heart rate of thirty, but their blood pressure is normal, and it's it's hard to resist the temptation to give them some atropine, just because we don't like seeing the bradycardia. It's it's an interesting point. If you have a person who is non-compliant with their hypertension medications, and their blood pressure is usually, you know, two twenty systolic, and now it's hundred, and they look like crap because their body's used to a blood pressure two times of what it currently is. You know, I think it's important to look at the patient as a whole if they've got signs of poor perfusion, they're diaphoretic, they're, you know, they're they're clamped down, they're altered, um, something like that. I think that would be an indication to implement this a little bit early to try to avoid those downstream effects of shock. We in our protocols, we write in, um, you know, the, the shock protocol really looks at the patient as a whole and not necessarily just the numbers Um, but again, you know, it's, you look at that bell curve of paramedics, you're going to have some people that are more likely going to pick up on those atypical or, um, less, um, it's the word I'm looking for the, the not, uh, concrete number descriptors of shock. So, you know, I think it's, it's just a matter of training our folks to look for not just the number and more of the patient as a whole and implementing something like this sooner so that you're not kind of behind the eight ball by the time you get to the hospital.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking of some salty old crusty medics whenever I was coming up in training saying, treat your patient, not your monitor. <laughs> yep, absolutely. But I think those are the same
2: the same people that are a little bit resistant to change uh, and are probably... Yes. You know, they they know their protocols backwards and forwards, or at least the protocols in their head that they've been using forever. And and so um, fortunately, in in my services, we've had a, a lot of good feedback from the plan to implement this. So, you know, I think it's it's important to try to stay proactive with the service and, and keeping people engaged and interested by implementing new strategies. Uh, at the same time making sure that we're doing it in a safe manner
0: well and that's a great thing about the push dose pressers is that uh it's rapid on rapid off um so if it works you you know you keep it up but um you know i know we've talked a lot about on uh, uh on this project about um shock from things like ami and and uh you know cardiac arrest but there's actually a lot of stuff out there that uh could put people on the verge of shock you know how many you know there's you know, and Brandon can tell you, We, you know, I'm sure you've seen too, we have, uh, often will have people in uh, cardiac arrest that likely from cardiac, from ischemia, and then you go, you shoot their arteries and they're, uh, you know, they're wide open. So you can become ischemic or have low cardiac output. You know, one of the things that we see this uh, uh, somewhat often, or it's not uncommon to have somebody with aortic stenosis mm-hmm. um, who just can't compensate. So they, their blood pressure drops a little bit. They're, um, they, they get ischemic, but because they have a valve area of, uh, you know, one, um, you know, one and a half, then, uh, they just can't compensate. So they continue to get a little bit more ischemic, more ischemic once they kind of plateau there, uh, once they kind of hit that, um, kind of where that curve is of ischemia, they'll go into cardiac arrest. However, with some push dose pressers, you can actually keep them from going off the ledge there, um, and bump them up a little bit. They get a little bit of uh, perfusion, and they actually come back to normal. But the problem is, typically in pre-hospital setting, you know, we're not uh, we're we're not treating these uh, these patients the, until they're in this uh, you know what we would consider um, you know class C or class D cardiogenic shock, which is you know like your uh, you know your house is on fire, and then you're you're trying to put it out with a garden hose. Where ha- had you had you caught it early enough, a garden hose would have worked. Um, but, uh, I think oftentimes, um, in pre-hospital setting, do you see the same thing in emergency medicine, um, kind of, uh, not treating shock aggressively until, uh, it may be too late or they're kind of on that precipice of, of it being too late. Yeah,
2: I think, you know, one of the problems is
0: in some of the places I've worked, we
2: can't, we can't transduce an A-line pressure in the emergency department for whatever reason. So, you're relying on the non-invasive cuff and pressures have been say, okay. And then you get one that's like, you know, 80 and you don't really believe it until you check it again. And then it's lower so that the cuff doesn't pick it up. And then you're messing with the cuff to try to, you know, replace it or move it so you can get a blood pressure. And then, you know, five, 10 minutes later, you realize that yeah it really is 60 and so we need to start something and then you've got to go to pharmacy or go to the pixis to get the LevaFed drip and you know now you're 15 minutes in because then you've got to put it in the pump and program the pump yeah. which takes 5 minutes so i have a fairly low threshold for at least in the patients that i see in the emergency department for giving a little push dose of something just to try to augment their pressure to get them over the hump until we can get an infusion started. So I think you're exactly right. I mean, obviously, the sooner you can treat that shock syndrome, I think the the less likely you are to get in that sort of self-perpetuating cycle of worsening shock, worsening perfusion, worsening shock, which causes worsening perfusion, and then so on and so forth.
0: So, um, so let me ask you then: Is uh, does this replace all pressors? Is, is there still a use for dopamine? Um, still a use for a levofed infusion?
2: Yeah, I think there. I think there
0: is. We're gonna keep it.
2: Um, we're keeping dopamine in place mainly just so that there's another option that, that people are are comfortable with. Um, you know, again, the concept of infusions through a drop set in an ambulance to me just doesn't really make much sense. I, I've never been a paramedic, so I've never, you know, I've never worked a shift in the back of an ambulance. So I can't, I don't have any firsthand experience, but that concept just doesn't make sense to me. So we're going to leave it just because I think in the event that we have a supply chain issue or some other reason that we can't get our hands on the appropriate push dose medicines, I want something to still be available. Um, and I think if you have pumps, then it's perfectly reasonable, especially for interfacility transfers, to use a medication like LevaFed that you have on a pump with a programmable microgram per minute dose. Um, but at least for my services, the the goal is to move toward push dose, presser doses instead of putting people on um, a, a fairly inaccurate in the the microgram dosing scheme of, uh, of using a drop set.
1: So with that being said, you know, we're talking about different properties talking about wrap it on, wrap it off. Um, Let's, if you don't mind, let's kind of briefly go through, I guess the, the three main choices that folks have, uh, have been, you know, there's been a buzz about Um, seems to be epi, phenylephrine and norepi are the, the three big choices. Uh, but like you're saying about holding on the dopamine, um, you know, that's, uh, you know, it's, there's more and more reason to be more acquainted, better acquainted with these pressers. Um, so what are the, uh, just basic properties talking about alpha and beta? What are the basic differences between these medications and why would people, um, or why would providers lean towards one versus lean leaning towards the other? Let's start with uh, Norepi, levofed.
2: Yeah, so Norepi, nor it's a lot of, it's primarily alpha. There's a little bit of beta that's associated with it. Um, so it's obviously the presser of choice with all of the sepsis trials. Um, it's the one that we most frequently will use in the emergency department. It's not commonly used as a push dose medication. It's it's more commonly a continuous infusion. Uh, I think mostly because of the way that it comes packaged, it comes, you know, pre-packaged in a bag. And so it's not really, you know, you get 250 cc. So it's not really set up to draw out one milliliter of that to give small push doses in the back of an ambulance. Yeah. And the uh,
1: math is uh, not that simple either. It's what, 16 mics per ml typically. Yeah. It's
2: yeah. And again, that's all based on how the the um, dictionaries within the pumps are set up. And so the nurse just has to go in and pick, you know, norepi out of the, the list of medications. And uh, so, I mean, I think you're going to see that most mostly in the emergency department on an infusion pump. But again, it's, it's primarily alpha with a little bit of beta, uh, pretty quick onset, pretty short half-life. Um, but again, primarily in the hospital setting. The big one that we're using is push-dose epi which is primarily beta and just a little bit of alpha. So again, this is something that we give all the time for cardiac arrest patients. Um, you know, it's, it's really familiar to everybody. Everybody knows how epi works. Um, the issue with epi is that you, get a, you can get a fairly strong rebound tachycardia from giving it just because of all of the beta effects. So if you have somebody who's already tachycardic, like a rapid AFib patient that's got a heart rate of 150, but their pressure sucks, epi's probably not the best choice for those people because they're already tachycardic. So, um, but the benefit to epi is it's widely available. Again, we can, we can pull out a milliliter out of a BristaJet, a cardiac BristaJet, and we can use that for our push doses. So, um, it's it's something we can rotate out the other the other thing that we were looking at from an operational a capital expenditure perspective we didn't want to go with uh, custom formulated compounded 1 to 100,000 epi which would be the safest if that's the direction you're going to go because you know those custom compounded medications have such a short half-life and they're expensive and being something that we're probably not going to use very often we wanted to make sure that it wasn't just going to expire and we'd have to reorder it. So using the cardiac bristajet, we can just pull a milliliter out. We have it in a separate kit. If that's about to expire, we just swap it out. So um, it just, from a capital expenditure perspective, it makes a lot more sense to use it that way.
0: Oh yeah. Like a lot of things with EMS, just because, you know, there are a lot of better things out there. They're just not available, you know, to EMS. And you think of some services that have, uh, you know, dozens and dozens of, uh, of ambulances trying to, to do all that and, and swap those things out it could be a logistical nightmare and, and really just not feasible. But the one thing I want to point out with Epi too, all as well is that, uh, to remember that you know, when we give Epi in mics, um, intravenously like that, it's not the same, uh, mechanism of air. It's not the same action as if we're giving a milligram, one to 10,000 or, or even 0. 0.3, milligrams um you know when you just get that just massive beta effects that they really are you know it is a presser so it is mostly a- acting mostly on alpha when you're giving it in uh in the push dose or in the drip so, yeah that's a good point
2: that's a good point in those small doses you get less of the the massive beta effect um it's still there obviously so you yeah. want to be aware of it but yeah well, that's a, it's, an
0: excellent point and that's why i i, re- I really like the epi you know we, we've um We've talked a lot about cardiogenic shock and, you know, and when we talk about um, things like blood pressure, blood pressure is a component of, uh, of heart rate and stroke volume. And, you know, obviously if a patient's had massive, um, in a massive MI, we want to decrease the amount of, um, of oxygen demand by increase, you know, we don't want to increase the heart rate um, all that much, but there are some times where we do want to kind of give it, give it a little bit more squeeze, a little bit more uh stroke volume which you know can potentially increase perfusion um and uh increase cardiac output um that way you know minimizing the uh oxygen demand but i do think that's why epi's a a really great medication for for these types of patients in shock and especially things outside of, you know outside of um cardiogenic shock where we're not really worried about the oxygen demand in the heart um you know septic shock and 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 those things like that that's so why i think epi's a really great option
1: Awesome. So yeah. let's let, yeah. uh, let, let's say a perfect world. Uh, cost not not a obstacle. Concentration not an obstacle. Walk us through phenylephrine or Uh What what's the primary difference there?
2: Yeah. So neo is great because it's all alpha. It's um, it's almost one hundred percent vasoconstriction. So there's really essentially no effect on heart rate. Where I first started using this was again, that rapid atrial fibrillation patient that's tachycardic and hypotensive that you can't really rate control because like Jason was saying, if you, you know, you try to control the rate, then you're all of a sudden they're, you're dropping their stroke volume and you're dropping their cardiac output. So um, we use the the neosinephrine, the phenylephrine to get that heart rate control, that blood pressure augmentation without affecting the heart rate so that now we can get their blood pressure up and then we can rate control them with another commonly used agent like diltiazem or a beta blocker um, so that you can get that heart rate control without, um, without making them go the other direction. So phenylephrine is great for those already tachycardic patients that are hypotensive or you need to get a little boost of blood pressure to be able to control the heart
1: rate. And now, historically, uh, for for you and your services in particular, that was originally the uh, that was originally the goal, wasn't it? Kind of going towards Neo. Uh, walk us through some of the obstacles that you faced. Whenever- really,
2: it's supply chain. Supply chain is the big problem with with phenylephrine. We've had a hard time finding appropriate concentrations. Like we can get the four milligram vials all day long, but to find the preloaded 80 per ml, uh, 80 mics per ml, or 100 mics per ml syringes, It's it's been like hen's teeth. Um, so we've sort of fallen back to just using push-dose epi as our primary presser because it's readily available. And then for those patients that would, where phenylephrine would fit well, um, we're, we're just unfortunately kind of left... Waiting to figure out those supply chain pieces. You know, we can eat, fall back to dopamine or, or something like that. Where,
0: um, you know, one of the more uh, traditional medications. Yeah, I would imagine for the number one, the the number of times that you're actually going to need it is very low. Yeah. And then to be able to, I mean, you know, to try to outfit all trucks like this, some of the, some of this stuff has to be refrigerated too. So trying to just the logistics of of having neo sticks and they, you know, they expire and, um, you know, and, and really, I think the safest way is to have them kind of pre-mixed. Yeah, so absolutely. That's trying, that's, trying yeah. to mix because, you know, we, 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 uh, you know, we, and I think we, a lot of us do this in medicine. We start saying, uh, well, how much did you give? Oh, I gave one amp. Like, mm-hmm. well, how much was that, <laughs> you know? Um, and I know in, uh, you know, Brandon, in, in initial education, I mean, we hammer people on this. Like, no, you didn't give one amp; you gave this much. Um, well, the difference between um, two hundred mics and two hundred, you know, and and a milligram or uh, or two milligrams is uh, <laughs> a couple couple zeros on a piece of paper, but um, and <laughs> <desert> detrimental <laughs> to patients. Yeah, you know, it's and this, huge, and, that's... This why, and this is why some of the hospitals, you know, t- take things like heparin. I mean, some you know a lot of hospitals, you have to have two people that sign off on heparin. Um, just because the difference between, um, you know, a vial of, uh, 1,000 per ml and 10,000 per ml, um, it all looks the same, especially at two o'clock in the morning. And it just can be, uh, super dangerous.
2: Yeah. And that's, again, going back to the safety piece, you know, we really try to tailor this to, um, the... I may
1: I may rephrase this,
2: so you may have to edit this.
1: Look, man, uh, you're trying to tailor it to the Brandons. I get it. I'm <laughs> no, so, not uh, dumb. That's right. So when we, I'm when not we the smart this, guy, but I'm also, I'm not dumb.
2: Uh, yeah, so when we look at the safety piece, you know, I really try to tailor all of these medications that are potentially high risk to the brand new medic who is on a single medic truck working by himself at 3 a.m. with not a lot of experience and maybe not a lot of confidence, not saying anything detrimental about that particular person. But we try to make this as as simple as possible so that you're going to use it when it's appropriate and you're not going to not use it because you're afraid of it or don't understand it. Or you're worried about making a 10x dosing error because you've got a pull up one syringe here and you've got to squirt out one CC of saline over here and then put the two together and, you know, um, shake it up. And it, it, I just really want to make sure that this is something that my medics are comfortable using and they're going to use it when it's appropriate and not be afraid of it.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So what is the, uh, in reference to training, um, Has there been a uh, has there been a plan established on how, you know, I mean, I know you have a lot of medics at your service. So is it just a um, just an in-service training, you know, at the academy or how what's the plan to kind of update everybody on something this this significant? I mean, it's a big change. So
2: I'm very fortunate to have a training center that is very proactive, is very um, forward thinking and uh, can roll things out much more quickly than I would have ever expected. So, fortunately, a program has already been developed by other services that we've taken and tailored to our specific protocols. So it's basically just uh, just a regular in-service. Uh, we go over the medications, we go over how to draw them up, indications, usage, um, you know, half-lives more importantly, when not to use it. So it's really a fairly, I don't want to say it's a simple process, but it's a process that we've done on multiple occasions with new protocol changes that uh, that I think can get rolled out relatively quickly. You know, it's not something where we're going to roll the protocols out and then tomorrow flip a switch and everybody's going to be getting push dose epi, but, um, you know, it's, it's not something that's going to take us 12 months to get through the entire service to get rolled out.
0: Do you have any plans to do the opposite of that, of recognizing when maybe it should have been given and it wasn't, and then just to kind of reinforce that? Hey, this would have been a great idea, a great opportunity to give it.
2: Yeah, so that's a that's another good point. The QI QA piece is is critical. So obviously, for any new intervention, we one hundred percent QI those charts for the first say you know six months, and then we're also going to look at potential shock cases to try to identify the ones that, you know, maybe this would have been a good place for push to pressers within our catchment area. I think the common transport times are not necessarily going to be long enough where it's going to be utilized. We have a couple of places a little bit farther out that I think there's more of a potential. Um, so, you know, those are the ones that we're really going to focus on just the longer transport times where, Maybe it could have could have had an impact, but yeah, I think looking at all of the potential cases, or at least a larger sub segment of those cases, to identify potential um, potential misses of an opportunity to use it will be important.
0: And then, how how important is this to work within a um, a system of care? Like, what, what if others want to implement this? What what are some of the things that you've done? with working with some of your local hospitals or, or, um, uh, kind of specialists on either feedback or, um, you know, the importance of, of the hospital, knowing, not, you know, knowing what you're doing, not necessarily, you know, you having to get their blessing, um, but, uh, just being aware of what you're doing.
2: It's always nice to play well in the sandbox with the people that you're delivering patients to. So, uh, the last thing I want is for one of our crews to roll in at two o'clock in the morning with a hypotensive patient that's gotten pushed us pressors, and the e d doc is like w t f mate where did this come from <laughs> so we've We've tried really hard to be proactive with the emergency departments, letting the medical directors know so they can let their their staff know, and then also going to the committees at the various hospitals, the cardiac care committees to let them know that this is something we're looking at doing, where all of the downstream stakeholders, the cardiologists, the intensive care physicians, the cath lab people, so that they're
1: aware of of what we're looking at doing so that it's not completely out of the blue. Awesome. Well, man, we've we've kept you for a while. Um, We're going to let you go, but I want to see if you'd be interested in after about a, you know, let's say a year after implementation and go live, you know, come back and share your, uh, your experience with launching it, uh, maybe share some case studies with us, some QI process, um, specifically about these push dose pressers. You'd be interested in that. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's, uh, it's important to add to the
2: paucity of research that's out there, whether or not we decide to formally publish it or not. I think it's, it's going to be important to develop that data set because at the end of the day, this may be something that sounds good in my head. But when we actually deploy it into the service, it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really make sense. So that's it's going to be really interesting to see what the data show us after the fact. So I'd love to come back in a year or so and we can rehash it and see if uh, see if it actually worked like I thought it would. Right on, brother.
0: Yeah, I know I want to kind of just make one final comment. Um you know you you mentioned and and I completely agree that you have to write protocols for um for not only the seasoned medic but for the the new medic that's going to be there by themselves um and uh not making it either too too complicated of a uh, of a protocol or too complicated of a means to be able to administer the medication. Um, One of the things that I think, and and Brandon and I have talked a lot about this, that have held us back in um, pre-hospital medicine is we go so far with that concept of, well, if so-and-so can't do it or so-and-so service or so, you know, an area of the state or an area of the country can't do it, then nobody should be able to do it. And I think that's another way, you know, so... You know, I think having medical directors like you who are well involved, well informed um, to be able to do this and do it safely and then measure it and see if it's the right thing, I think is a fantastic model for um, how we need to be doing this. Um, One of the one of the uh, one of my uh, I consider him a mentor, um, Tim Henry, who developed one of the first um, STEMI systems. Uh kind of a, uh, a light bulb moment for me was when he, uh, I heard him say once that um, it's more important to have a protocol than to have the right protocol um, and that we should just put, you know, we should put it out there. We should do it safely, but we should measure it. Um, you know, so I appreciate what you said of, you know, we might look at this and go, maybe this isn't the right thing, or maybe we look at it and maybe, um, leave, maybe FP um, uh, is not the right way to go, but we're not going to know that unless we can go out there and uh look at it and and actually do it. But um, you know, there's lots of people that wanna do it. There's lots of services where lots of training centers that want to do it, but really it's gonna come down to people like you, um, that have the trust in EMS and have um kind of the uh the background, the and the academic ability, um, and the clinical ability to be able to implement something like this. So on uh, on behalf of EMS everywhere i want to i just want to thank you personally and i hope others uh listen to this and kind of uh either model a, li- a little bit of after what you're doing or to go out and find people um that are uh are willing to be as passionate and involved as you yeah jason i really i really appreciate that
2: it's it's important to have medical directors that are involved and are willing to um, push the envelope as much as they can safely and effectively to keep the the paramedics engaged in their service. Uh, but it's it's also important to make sure that you look at the data to figure out if something's going to work or not. Because if it's not working, the last thing you want to do is just to leave the protocol in place forever, and then uh, you know it's either not going to get used or it's going to get used inappropriately someplace. So. Um, yeah, I'm I'm really fortunate to be involved with services that are are forward thinking and have really had some, some leaders that uh, that came before me. One that comes to mind is Dr. Mabley. Jill Mabley is one of the the foremost EMS leaders in the state of Georgia. And so I you know, I have her to thank for setting the stage for where I am today. So um it's it's a, a pleasure to be able to really, I feel like we're advancing EMS as much as we possibly can and, and keeping our patients safe and our, our crews engaged. Well said.
1: All right, man. Well, thank you so much for your time.
2: Yeah, it's good to talk to you guys. Looking, uh, looking forward to seeing you guys again soon.
1: Absolutely, brother. Thank you. Have a good one, man. You've been listening to Mediclass Citizen. If you like what you heard, check out our website at www.mediclasscitizen.com. Also, find us on social media where you can follow, like, subscribe, and share. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have videos on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.